Good morning, church. We are wrapping up our uh, discussion of the character of God this morning. Um, As we wrap up this series, uh, before I start, I just want to remind you of uh, where uh, some of our folks are. You know, Pastor Pastor Webster is in the Dominican right now, Um, and uh, I was kind of judging by the time... I'm thinking right now that Joel Wagness is just finishing preaching, depending on how long he went. He and Pastor Greg had all week to work on it, so I don't know, he might still be at it. But Joel was preaching today in the Dominican, and uh, they, were, they should have wrapped up the fin- and finished building the, the uh, churches and things that they were building. So if you get an opportunity, if you, st- if you get distracted during the sermon today and you need something else to think about, pray for the folks that are in the Dominican, this is uh, the last day or so that they'll be there, and then they'll be wrapping up and heading home for safe travels and um, for the memories and the impact that they have to carry on for generations. Um, as we talk about the character of God this morning, I just wanted to uh, remind you that we said that when God decided that he was going to tell the world about his character, to answer the questions of Satan about his behavior and his choices. He chose biography as the answer. He chose that biography to be that of his followers and his son. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author starts out with this statement. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. At many times and in various ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. After the resurrection of Jesus, the biography was handed over to us. And it is ours to carry forward an expression of the character of God. Um, Any of you have a bio? Raise your hand if you have a bio. One of those written ones you turn into the paper. Was it as embarrassing for you to write as it was for me? Because when, when they asked me for a bio, the first time I had to write one, they was like, oh, we want a bio. I said, okay, what exactly do you want? And they said, oh, you know, we want, we want kind of where you went to school, something about your family and your accomplishments. And so you have to sit down and in a paragraph you have to say, oh, you know, I have this many kids and I went to school here and I'm awesome. That's why you invited me. That's kind of what a bio is. If you think about it, that's pretty much what it is. You have to put in a paragraph Why anybody who reads this paragraph would want to hear what you have to say in the next 20 minutes or hour or whatever you're going to be up there. You know, and so it's just a weird thing to me. It's a strange uh, sort of uh, little commercial about yourself. But I was thinking about, you think about this in terms of the character of God. If somebody were to write our bio, so somebody writes bio for you, you don't have to write your own. So somebody writes a bio for you. How many of the characteristics of God would appear in your bio? Would people, as they're writing through our bio, start going down the list and saying, oh, yeah, loving, caring, gracious? You know, would, would all of those things start appearing in the bio? Or would grumpy, hard to live with, difficult be the ones? You know, I love my boss. She's so kind. She's so helpful. I can't handle my boss. He's a jerk. She fired me. Sometimes you have to do that. You know? What would be in your bio if somebody else was writing it? Would it be 
representative of the character of God. Is that enough to scare you? It is me. It is me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 remind us of what the problem was. From the beginning, Satan attacked the character of God. From the beginning, he said, God is not trustworthy. Remember, God said, if you eat of this plant, you're going to die. He said, ah, you won't. You will not certainly die. Did they die? Did they die that day? No. You know, I just realized this week, you know why they didn't die that day? Because mercy intervened. The wages of sin is death. We, we are not consumed because the mercy of God is given to us every morning fresh. The only reason they weren't turned into little piles of ashes like in the cartoons is because mercy interceded in that moment of sin. From the very first sin, Eve takes a bite of the apple and God puts a veil of mercy between him and her. She hands it to Adam, he takes a bite, and God puts a veil of mercy between him and God. Wow. And ever since, we've been living under that covering, that protection, that mercy. Satan said, you will not certainly die. They eventually do, because the results of living in this planet. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like what? God. That's a pretty big promise. A salesman comes to your door and says, if you buy my vacuum, you will be like God. It's, it's like one of those fulfillments from the cartoons, you know. Every time you see a megalomaniac in the cartoon, he wants to have God-like power and authority, right? That's kind of what this is, is you will be like God. Maybe that's why it's in the cartoons. Because deep down inside of us, in those creepy little dark corners, is a little dust of this reminder you might get to be like God. You might get to be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. They already knew good. Now they were going to get to know a whole new category of thinking. And as Dr. Phil said, how's that going for us? It hasn't worked out that well, has it? As we have dealt with what it means to know good and evil, we have... Uh, many, many times I think wish that no one had eaten that first apple. That we could just be here knowing good and no evil. And that it is God's intent to restore that to us is the story of the Bible. The character of God is solely being revealed in the Bible. It's taking on these accusations and slowly putting them to the lie. It's over and over again stating, no, he's not like that. He's not capricious. He doesn't hold out on you. He loves you. He cares about you. He intervenes for you. And he wants to bless you in all the ways he can. And here is the lie. I was reading on the Internet about church and people who don't like it, and this was one of those representative comments. When I say that I hate church... I'm referring to religion, to the religious, organized, overpackaged, monotonous, manipulative system cycle that disguises itself as the true church. Do you know there are whole lists on, on the internet of people who say, this is why I hate the church? I hate the church. I'm referring to the religious, organized, overpackaged, monotonous, manipulative system cycle that disguises itself as the true church. 
out there in the world, if you start looking around very much, it doesn't take too long to find that the church doesn't have a good bio. That the characteristics of God don't often show up when the description of the church is. If you were describing God, would you say, I'm referring to God, the, that organized, overpackaged, monotonous, manipulative system cycle that disguises himself as the true God? But when you talk about God's children, are you surprised by the, by the verbiage? I'm really not. I read through the rest of this guy's uh, commentary. It was quite long, actually. He had lots of things to say about why he hated the church. And almost all of it I had to agree with. At some time or another, those have been the characteristics of the church. And yet God has put his bio in our hands. God has said, please reveal to the world what I'm like. It's a scary proposition to me. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, for reinforcement of the idea. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of, the, of God's grace in its various forms. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul, just a couple of verses later, says, I, too, try to please everyone in everything. Now I need to stop here for a second. If you are a people pleaser, turn off your hearing aid here. Because if that's your natural characteristic, you now have a Bible verse to go lean on when you're feeling like you have to make everybody happy. That's not what this is talking about. This is not the idea that everybody has to be smiling and happy and you have to go around and be responsible for everyone's happiness. What the apostle is actually saying is, as far as is possible with me, I try to go about doing good. I try to go about blessing people. I try to go go about doing the right things, caring for others. Why? I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. Paul's looking at a bigger picture. He's saying, I try to represent God well. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to represent God's character well. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 and following. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in this passage. If you have your Bible with you, you might want to to break it out. Just kind of read ahead, read behind, kind of catch catch the context. But Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 34, the description of the separating of the sheep and the goats. What does this set itself up as? What day is this in the history of mankind? Judgment day. Judgment day. I feel like I need to preach on the millennium right now because it gives a different picture of judgment day. Judgment Day has been used, this picture has been used to describe Judgment Day in Scripture over and over again. People talk about it. Well, we're all going to stand before God and He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. You know, by the time He gets here at the Second Coming, He already has figured that out. You know, when Jesus arrives at the Second Coming, this is already squared away. He's already figured out the sheep, the goats, who's coming, who's not. You remember there's a resurrection of the saved, a resurrection of those who follow Jesus. You've got to have that figured out before you get here if you're going to do that to it, right? 
If you're going to have a resurrection, you have to figure out before you get here who you're raising, who you're not. So in, the, in this picture, I just want to help you understand, this is a, this is a metaphor of the process. Okay? There are, he's not literally taking sheep and goats to heaven. This is not, um, I don't like goats. I don't, I, sheep I'm fine with, don't like goats. Right? So you get that's not true. You, you, you can see quickly when you're reading the text, I'm reading a metaphor because he's using this picture. This, he's calling people sheep and goats. It's not about literal sheep and goats, right? Just nod your head if you know. That's true. Okay. I, sometimes I just need encouragement. So we know it's not about sheep and goats. He doesn't say, I love the sheep. I'm taking them all to heaven. I hate them goats. Leave those goats behind. That's not what this is about. He's simply using a metaphor. He's saying this is like when a shepherd brings his animals to him. Have you been driving around town and noticed that the springtime sheep are out? Yeah. I was driving up 65 the other day, and I noticed that the sheep and the goats don't hang out that much together. I don't know if you watch, watch the little herds. They seem to eat different things. I noticed that the goats were eating taller things, and they were eating them from the top. The sheep seem to always have their heads down. If they're eating taller stuff, they must start at the bottom and work it down to them. But the goats were seeming like they were like up nibbling the leaves and stuff on the taller things. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. They kind of separate their, themselves by their behavior. They, they pick their own level of things they're interested in, their own food, their own desire. So in this separation right now, when these, these shepherds move from place to place, they do these similar things. They bring in their sheep. They call their dogs. And they can separate out their flocks. Sheep on one side, goats on the other side. It's a common practice. It's been done for centuries. You've got to shear the sheep. You don't shear the goats much. This is the picture. It's a metaphor for judgment day. You're not all standing before God and God is going, okay, you to the right, you to the left, you to the right, you, you left, left, le- you right, le- left, left, I said. That's not literally what's happening. It's a, it's a picture. It's a metaphor of the judgment process. It's a metaphor of what's happening. What's important about it is the message it's conveying about the judgment, about the content, Okay. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Is this a good thing to hear? Yeah. How long has heaven been prepared for the people who would be saved? From the foundations of the world. We know, the Bible tells us, that the salvation of mankind was in the plan before creation happened. God knew we were going to mess this up, and he decided beforehand how he was going to resolve it. That the sacrifice of Jesus was planned long before we even were created as a, as a species, as a, as, a, as a family group. Before the creation of the universe, God set this plan in motion. So when Adam and Eve sinned, was he surprised? Was he caught off guard? Did he have a plan? Of course he did. He stepped right in with mercy right at, as soon as this sin happened. Okay? This is the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So given that you've been nice to me in all these other ways, I'm going to overlook the, the, the three or four murders. We're okay with those because you were nice. Is that what it says? 
It doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about my bad behavior. It says, as long as I'm nice, I get saved. Right? Isn't that what it says? I'm taking you to heaven because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. You know, of all of those people, I think if somebody was naked running down my street, I would make sure I got them some clothes. I have a natural impulse to fix that. Yeah, sometimes you go to the beach and you wish there were more clothes out there. My question, though, is whenever we look at this passage, I have over and over heard, over and over, heard, over and over again, heard this passage referred to as the dividing line. If you don't help the homeless, you're not going to be saved. If you don't help, if you don't visit people who are in prison, you're not going to be saved. Especially people who visit people in prison and help the homeless use this passage. And you know what it makes everybody else feel toward them? Grumpy. We feel judged and we don't want to talk to them. We don't want to deal with them. I don't want to go with you because you just told me that I'm going to be lost if I'm not nice. So, what are we dealing with? How is a person saved? By the grace of God. Because of his mercy, because of his grace, because you've accepted his grace for you. Correct? Okay. Then what's this? This sounds like a list of the issues of the judgment. On the last day, he will be like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And he'll separate them all out. And then he'll say to the ones who were nice, you get to be saved. Right? Shouldn't you all be nicer? Let's keep looking. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? So what is, the, what, is the, what is the perspective of the person who's actually being sent off to an eternal bliss with God? I, I don't remember any of that. When did we see you like that? When did we engage in that and it was you? We don't remember that. Do you know, it's really interesting here that the righteous are not keeping score. And you know what he says after that, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. But I just want to recognize they're not keeping score. They're not saying, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I know, we've been feeding the homeless for like 30 years in my church. You were probably among those guys. Oh, yeah, naked people, we clothed them. If you were naked, we got you some clothes. Right? They are not keeping score. So is this motivated out of, I need to avoid the judgment? Is the point here, be good or you're not going to make it? Careful. Because the point isn't be be bad. Let's keep going. Knowing you're saved. 
can eliminate your need for a scoreboard. You buy that? Knowing you're saved can eliminate your need for a scoreboard. I am very interested in a scoreboard when I think I am the one making God save me. Right? Because I need proof. If I get to the gates, this is, you think about all the, all the things, all the pictures, metaphors we use. If you get to the gates of heaven and St. Peter's got his list out and you're not on the list, don't you want your spreadsheet of things I did? Right? Here, here's my spreadsheet. Here's the next page and the next page. I got 50 years of good behavior. Come on, let me in. If that's what this is about, then you need a scorecard, right? But if salvation is not based on your scorecard, it eliminates the need to have a scorecard. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John is saying, some of you have been worried about this. You're keeping a scorecard. Here's the bottom line. I've been writing to you to give you one piece of information solidly as the foundation of your understanding. You can know that you have eternal life because you believe in the name of the Son of God. You've accepted what He's done for you. You've accepted His sacrifice. You've accepted His grace. You've accepted His covering. You've accepted His Lordship. You've accepted Jesus. And in doing so, you can know that you have eternal life. Now, I need to stop here. Because some of us go to church week after week. We walk in the doors and we feel like we're lost and we walk out of the doors and we still feel the same. If you choose to accept the sacrifice of Jesus for yourself, the covering of Jesus, his mercy, his grace, his love, and his lordship, your salvation is secure. There's no question on this. The Bible says that's the only exchange. Have you or have you not accepted Jesus and what he did on your behalf? If he did, you can know that you have eternal life. If you haven't made that decision, what are you waiting for? Ultimately, folks, if you come to church and you're still frightened that in the last day of Earth's history, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the ledger, that you're going to wake up and you're a goat, not a sheep, resolve it before you walk out the door. The offer's on the table. If you want to follow God, if you want to have the covering of Christ's mercy, His grace, you can. Simply ask for it. Now I know, as soon as I say that, some of you say, but I'm, I'm not always that sincere about it. You're right, you're not. Scripture says, on my worst day, Romans chapter 5, while I was an enemy, Christ died for me. My messed up head, my messed up understanding, my broken, torqued, sinful 
motivation was never a part of the question. And it has nothing to do with the way he feels about me. He's saying, accept my salvation. Yoke yourself together with me. I can really pull. We'll get you home. Make the decision. Again, if necessary. Make it every day if you need to. Accept the grace of Jesus as your own. Don't let this go on another day. My little children, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus in John chapter 5. There's probably no clearer place in all of Scripture, and these are the utterances of Jesus. These are the red letters in your Bible. Most assuredly, I say to you. Do you need more than most assuredly? Most assuredly. Black, bold, 16-point type, underlined, italicized. Okay? Okay? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has what? Note the word has. It's not a question. It's not a might. It's not a they once did or they will sometime in the future. It is a statement of present. He has, she has eternal life. And shall not come into sheep and goats. Shall not come into judgment but has passed from death. Sin and our acceptance of it was an absolute death penalty to life. Jesus and our acceptance of him is an absolute surety. I know that we struggle with this because Everything and everyone else in our life expects behaviors to change before we get any kind of support and blessing, right? Everything about our life is meritorious but this. Christianity is not a merit-based religion. Every other religion is. Three angels. First one comes out saying... Everlasting gospel, still available, get it while it's still available. Second angel says, every other system is a failure. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, repeated, so that we don't miss it. It's fallen, it doesn't work. Meritorious salvation is not possible. You can't be that good. You can't make that many sacrifices. You can't give that much money. You can't do what you need to do to merit salvation. It's impossible for you can't be done. And the third angel, by the way, 
is simply a statement that you are in fact up against a big decision. The third angel is simply saying, choose life. Because hell is real. And the third angel, by the way, doesn't end until chapter 19. The revelation that hell is real and that all the horrible things of Scripture are true, all those things that the Bible says will come upon the world if sin reigns, are true. So on that last day, when the king gets an opportunity, when the king says, these are the sheep, these are the goats, why does he confuse the matter? with be nice. Why does he bring up, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. Why does he bring up this as the picture? If there's no merit in it, why bring it up? The difference between my life without an understanding of the grace and the abundance of God and my life with it is not a difference in my behavior. It's a difference in my heart. You get that? I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. It's not a difference in my behavior. It's a difference in my heart. When I see the gift of God, it changes the way I look at you. It changes me from the inside out. When I remember his gift, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, there go to the King James, in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The facts of that information changes the internal measures of life for me. I look at the world differently. When the Bible says we're supposed to be thankful in all things. Why? Because it changes the way you feel about your world. It changes the way you approach those around you. If you, if you know the grace and mercy and gift of God, it's easier when your eternity is securely in His hand to give that grace and mercy to others. When you know the sacrifice made for your brother, you can look him in the eye and know how important he is to God. It changes the way you deal with him. You know what the sheep and the goats thing are? You know how you tell a sheep from the goat? You look at them. That's a sheep. That's a goat. You know how the whole world tells the difference between a sheep and a goat? They look at them. That's a sheep. That's a goat. 
You know how the whole world tells about the character of God and his people? That's a follower of God. I can tell by looking at him. You know what the, the significance of? I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink is. That's the way the heart of God is expressed in the world where we live. It's not meriting salvation, but it demonstrates transformation. These people aren't keeping count. They're not going around saying, oh, look, a homeless person. Let me go earn some brownie points with God. They're just looking at a person and they're not seeing homeless. They're seeing need. And they're saying, man, what can I do to help? They're going about like Jesus, doing good. They're living from a full, abundant experience in the world. My daughter and I were having breakfast this week. And we were sitting there and we had ordered. And she changed her order at the last moment. Not an unusual thing. People do it all the time, right? You do it. You go, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this. And then the, the waiter comes and the pressure of the moment of decision weighs on you. You know, there are 30 things on the menu. There are four that I might like to eat. There's one that I've decided on. Oh, oh, oh. Now I have to have somebody write it down. Oh, oh. If I, this, oh, if I eat that, I can't eat that. And what a, I can't have two things. That would look bad. My wife would get mad at me. Um, oh, it's the pressure. And she changed her decision. She told me what she was going to get. She got something else. And I said, so why did you decide on that? Why did you get something else? Why did you change your mind? And this is what she said. She said, when I looked at the first thing, I kind of had a mindset of scarcity. And I wanted to get a lot. You laugh because you do that. Okay, we're looking for value here. Why do I get three refills on the iced tea? Because by the time I get three real refills, it goes from being a buck and a half to 50 cents a buck. Think about it. Those of you who don't do any accounting. She said, I had a scarcity mindset and I wanted to order more. And she said, I just sort of rested in the abundance of God and recognized I didn't need that much. This other thing I like a lot. She's been to this restaurant before. And I, and I enjoy it. It's smaller. But I, I have plenty. When you live in a place where you understand the difference, when at your heart you understand that you are blessed abundantly, when in your heart you know the people around you, Jesus died for, when in your heart you look at the world through those different lenses, you feed feed the hungry, you give water to the thirsty, you visit the prison, you clothe the naked, not because you're keeping score. Not because you even knew that there was a score being kept. Simply because you're looking at the world the way God looks at the world.
By this will all men know that you are my disciples. That you love one another. At the end of the day, the discussion of the character of God in Scripture is full. I mean, it's everywhere in the text. I keep bumping into it over and over and over again. But the last picture on the planet is the one in your mirror. And he trusts you with it. Let's pray. Father, we are beyond blessed to have been given so much. We truly have abundant life. We truly have the gift of salvation. Lord, we have been given corrective lenses to begin to understand and see that the people around us are your children. I pray for the power of the Spirit to move on us and the courage of our convictions to do what we know you're moving on us to do. That the world might be changed because your people walk and talk and act like you. In Jesus' name, amen.